times I wonder why I spent the lonely night dreaming of a song, the melody. Welcome to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Volt, sitting here with my brother from another mother, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, brother? Dude, I feel good today. I'm feeling good, feeling good. We're going to be getting right back into it. If you uh, are listening to our podcast in order, maybe uh, you just wrapped up uh, Project Aquarius Part 1. Um, so we're going to do Project Aquarius Part 2 because now we're going to get into some of the meat and some of the potatoes. The good part. Yeah, and some of the, the crazy going down the rabbit hole kind of stuff. So... Um, yeah, so we're going to be picking right back up here. I believe we're going to, we finished with level one of Project Aquarius, is that, or of S4? S, yep, S4. Uh, so we're going to go down one level. There's five total levels, and we're going down to level two. All right, so here we go. So level two, or four two, was known as Alice's Floor. Now, this specific floor contained a laboratory for weapons research and development, three boardrooms, and provisions for emergency supplies. Now also located on 4-2 were two specific areas which contained components for Project Sidekick. Level 4-2 was also the location of Project Looking Glass. This device utilized six composite electromagnetic fields and height-adjustable rotating cylinders, which is injected with a specific type of gas. The entire assembly can be rotated 90 degrees from the horizontal axis, this allows scientists to warp the local fabric of space-time both forward or backwards by long or short distances relative to the present time. Now, The project looking glass device was used to predict the potential probability of future events. Once the device is tuned properly, images of probable future events are projected in space, in open space within the field similar to a hologram. Now, the data output of the device, images in some case sounds, were then captured via high-resolution audio-video capture devices. If multiple probabilities of the same event were displayed, they could be de-interlaced by the use of specific hardware platforms. Next to Project Looking Glass device were two transport pads, which could be teleport which could teleport physical matter or humans from one location to the other instantly but not always reliably, and with certain disastrous outcomes during testing phases. Dan had the unfortunate experience of being in the room during one of those unfortunate outcomes and witnessed a death. You, you know what that reminds me of? What's that? Uh, the Philadelphia Experiment. Yeah. The disastrous, like. the disastrous outcomes of the Philadelphia Experiment, where there was people... Well, yeah. I mean, in both cases, they were dealing with a, a force and a power that they had no idea how it really worked. Right, and there was a bunch of elec electromagnetics in both of them. Uh, very similar. Uh, this level two, though, man, that is crazy. They got level two seems to be very interesting to me. It, it definitely does. And uh, so, before we continue on with level two, I just want to say, um, if you haven't listened to um, the podcast that we were just referring to, Project um, Project Aquarius level. Uh, no, 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 no. Which one that we were just? Oh, talking? the Philadelphia. Experiment. Oh, yeah, Philadelphia experiment. We did a full podcast on that. Feel free to go back and check it out. Uh, okay, so continuing on with uh, the Looking Glass um, Level 4, 4-2. So, 
Let's see where we're at. Okay. Okay. Now, during Dan's time at S4, five concurrent programs were also being conducted. One named Project Galileo. It dealt with propulsion system of extraterrestrial and future terrestrial vehicles. Another program termed Project Sidekick, which Dan said relates to weapons platform, but refuses any further comment. The third project, known as Project Looking Glass, dealt with time distortion. More specifically, this program dealt with the physics of seeing the effects of an artificially produced gravity wave on time. The overall umbrella designation for the study of anything having to do with extraterrestrial biological entities and their interaction with humans on Earth was known as Project Aquarius. The fourth project was a separate weapons program developed as a second-generation research program from Project Sidekick. Now, Dr. Dan refuses to provide the official name for that program. The other program involved a suite of biological defense operations for which Dan worked in the capacity of senior scientists. No other, no other information would be provided on for that program. Also on uh, level S4, 4-2, I'll break down a little bit more of the looking glass device. So the looking glass device at area S4, level 4-2, used a barrel housed within the center hole of a donut-shaped structure. During operation, argon gas was sprayed into the center of the rotating barrel. A number of powerful electromagnetics encircled the barrel, and as the power is fluctuated into the magnets and the orientation of the magnets is changed, it dials into the probabilities within hyperspace, contacting wormholes to vary various probabilistic universes. Whoa. According to Dan and Will Uhouse, a direct witness to early looking glass operations during the 1970s, the scientists working on the program quickly found out that the device was multifunctional. Through a variation of power settings and alignments, the device could produce images. It was soon determined that these images dealt with the future events that might take place on Earth. Crazy. Now, what I have to say real quick is you got to remember what, what, what Steve was just saying. This took place during the 70s. Now, I was born in 1976, so 42 years ago. So this project going on with this type of technology, I mean, it's been suppressed for even longer than that. I mean, since 1947 and probably before, I mean, because... This type of uh, visitation to Earth has been going on for years, or for, for millennia, but I just can't, it, it, it's hard to grasp. Because honestly, if they would have released like the technology that they had from 1947, or even what Tesla was putting together in the 20s, there would have been no reason why people in 1930s shouldn't have been walking around with iPhones, stuff like that. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, the the size of the of everything has gotten smaller, but these basic principles that they're coming up with during this time are much more powerful than the things that we're dealing with right now. Oh, yeah, for sure. So according to Dan, it was soon determined what events would be causes for the ultimate splitting of humanity into what would become the J-Rods and the Orion beings. That information from the looking glass was supported by the direct testimony of both the J-Rods and the Orion beings, according to their written and oral histories. It was further supported by observation of data from the quantum cube gift, 
which was the Orion Cube given to us by the Orion beings. Given to President Eisenhower in 1954. According to Dan, the looking glass devices and stargates were dismantled in an effort to protect humanity based upon the totality of information collected. There were also several other efforts commissioned by Majestic to derail the potential sequence of events that would have led up to this catastrophe. That's 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 crazy right there. I just want to say, like the Orion Cube that was given to pres- President Eisenhower. I mean, you don't hear too much about that, but I mean, if if you are um, into this type of topic and you do your own research, I mean, cubes play a huge part in um, all types of extraterrestrial inter. Um, I mean, I don't usually like to talk about certain religions, but uh, th- there is a religion where um, you know people take pilgrimages to, and they have to do like seven laps around a huge black cube. And uh, I, d- I think it, somehow it's all tied together. I don't want to get off bases, so I'm gonna let Steve take it back. But no, I, I mean that that little that little cube that was given to President I- Eisenhower is lucky man. He was the one that had the face to face meeting, si- yep. signed the treaty with the J Rods. Uh, that guy, he he's the one that... Yeah, and if you want to hear some really good um, information on the interaction that Eisenhower had with the uh, with the extraterrestrials, um, his granddaughter has a YouTube channel, and she talks about it all. Well, that's all she talks about, you know, the stuff that her grandfather dealt with and, you know, other things of present day. But if anyone would know, she would. So humanity has witnessed multiple prophecies about the times in which we live. Whether it be from the Prophecy Rock, which is the Mayan prophecies uh, concerning their calendar. And uh, the Mayan calendar was huge. Uh, It keeps coming up 2012, 2016. Or the prophecies of Falconelli. The take of some people on these prophecies is positive, while others are, are negative. Both of those groups are reacting within the probabilistics of the possible futures for humanity. The people who wrote these prophecies felt the same thing and encoded them honestly so that we could experience them while making the right choices for our future. We have now arrived within that time, and the data provided to Dr. Dan from the J-Rods has indicated that the time of this catastrophe, which resulted in the splitting of humanity, has passed. This should mean to us that we have the opportunity to grasp the positive contained within these prophecies as a means to direct our path into the future. I think that's really powerful. And I like the fact that they talk about the Mayan calendar because uh, a lot of uh, research that I've been doing recently um, having to do with the, with the Mayan calendar and um, 2012 was uh, that they weren't necessarily saying that it was going to be the end of time or like the end of Earth. But basically what that date was symbolic of was when uh, humanity was going to start taking a shift in their enlightenment, which I truly believe in. Um, because I think back, you know, since that, and I'm just like, wow, you know, some of the things that I've come to terms with and, and, and now believe versus things that are life. And it's just like, wow, there definitely is that I feel a shift going on because we have to uh we have to reach a certain level become a, like a level 1 existence before we're going to even be allowed to travel interstellarly they they said that on um uh the Apollo 17 when they were returning that they could hear 
um, not only inside the capsule that we're returning, but on uh, in mission control, they could hear a voice say, you're not ready yet, don't come back. And guess what? We haven't been back. We, we haven't been back. And I think that we were closer to that enlightenment before the Industrial Revolution. Well, uh, sure. I mean, we've, since then... We haven't done it. We've lost 100 years. I mean, the information technology revolution that's going on now needs to continue but at the same time we need to scale back our pollution and become sustainable again in order to and we have to have a balance where our technology is continuing on and yet our our way of life with polluting and war needs to calm come back down absolutely i saw some videos the other day of some um local rivers like in africa that are flowing like really hard. You can't see the water. It is so disgust. It's just filled with plastic and just garbage. Ugh. It's the most disgusting. And you know we can't turn a blind eye to that. I mean that's it's destroying our planet. Yeah, that plastic patch out in the Pacific isn't going anywhere. So I think that we just as a, a race, a human race, need to scale back on our pollution and get back to living locally. And I think that will help us as a species become interstellar. Sure. Because when you know better, you do better. Exactly. Thank you. I like that. Thanks. Okay. So where are we at? Let's see. Okay. Let's get back and see what uh, what Dr. Dan's up to. So Dr. Dan, he, he comments permanently wired above the entrance to the Project Looking Glass Laboratory. There was a large three-foot-tall statue of a rabbit, symbolic of Alice in Wonderland. This rabbit was described as having a clock in his hand and wearing a royal maroon vest with gold fringes and black buttons. Okay. Now, if you've ever seen, and if you haven't, I highly recommend it because it's a fantastic movie, and I think that it ties in extraterrestrials with uh, ancient Egypt perfectly, but uh, the movie Stargate, the original Stargate movie, um, the depiction of the Stargate from the Hollywood movie, um, the way that it looked, they're trying to say, had some similarities, but uh, aside from um, some superficial similarities, the actual Stargate looked nothing like the one from the movie. Now, there was another looking glass device located elsewhere on the Nevada test site range. The earlier version of that looking glass device was viewed by Will Uhouse in 1970s. Now, at this time, two devices were required, operating at, at the same settings. For either of the two devices to emit sound associated with the probable events, they were presenting as data. Now, Dr. Dan, being a microbiologist and not having had further briefings about Project Looking Glass during the 1900s time frame, could not specify why the two devices were required to produce sound. Now, a flip book was worn on the arms of those directly achieved from control room. Oh, no, I'm sorry. A flipbook was worn on the arms of those directly involved with the field operations of the Stargate devices. Now, within S4, all settings for the looking glass were achieved from the control room, so no flipbooks were required. Now, this consisted of drawings and specific galactic positioning codes which were used to program the Stargate device so that the personnel could accurately determine their destination point once the device was in operation. That makes sense. I mean, Oh, I think so. You're going in there. You need to get an accurate uh, destination point. Yeah, at least what out. star system you're headed to. <laughs> that would be weird if you didn't have that. Oh, that'd be terrible. 
I would. I mean, I well, would. in the in the original movie Stargate, they couldn't come back the same way that they did. They had to. I think it was like another Stargate. So they were going through this other star system and just hoping to find this other Stargate or be able to repair this one with technology from that planet. And that's a big matzo ball hanging out. Yeah, I don't think I'd be stepping through. <laughs> So level two, man, that is uh, hey, level two. It, it, it it's pretty crazy. I mean, uh, and w- gosh, we still got what three more levels to go. That project looking glass is super cool. Uh, I totally dig it. So, so level level three of area S four contained the residential living quarters for the members of Majestic Twelve. Dan and I are only willing to say the following, and only that information may be represented as coming from us. The former leader of the Consistory of Majestic was accurately identified by Dr. Dan in an affidavit sworn under penalty of perjury that the former leader was a high-ranking official in the United States Navy, the NSA, the Director of National Intelligence's office. That former leader is properly identified by the name Jay McConnell. The residential portion of this level consisted of 12 apartment-like rooms complete with a sunken living area, television, and restrooms. Level 3 also contained decontamination wash stations, along with the storage facility. Additionally, imagine what's in that storage facility. Oh, I could could, It'd be a dream. Additionally, Level 3 contained a boardroom and provisions for a fully equipped biological laboratory consisting of tissue and cell culture analysis areas and dissection facilities. That was level three. So we're going to move right along to level four. Uh, okay, so level four. I'm just going to jump right into it because, like I was saying, we got a lot to cover tonight and it just keeps getting more and more interesting. So here we go. Level four, aka the Aquarius level, contained five decontamination areas along with multiple laboratories and equipment rooms. Level four also includes the only access elevator to level five. Now, now while working at Area S4, Dan's security badge number was H-6196, capital M-A-J, for MAJ, also standing for MAGIC, which MAGIC is the highest security clearance within the United States government that you can possibly obtain. Now, Dr. Marsha's majestic badge number was Q-3192-MAJ. Now, according to Dr. Dan Burrish, his boss at Area S4, he reported to directly to Majestic 12, who in turn reported to a cover committee, who then reported to the committee of the majority. Now, the cover the cover committee's job was to condense and sometimes prevent reports from reaching the committee of the majority. The committee of the majority was an internationalized version of the group called the Majestic, which had been started in 1947 by President Harry S. Truman following the Roswell crash. The Majestic 12 were organized because of the Roswell crash. The fortuitous time of the Roswell crash and the recognition that we were dealing with the high strangeness of time travel prompted President Truman to produce a group which was placed outside the normal organizational structure of the United States government. This all came together being secretly shuffled underneath the movements that were going on to establish the National Security Act of 1947. The Majestic has used the same technique ever since, diplomatically and militarily 
move its actions underneath the more public actions that were going on. James Forrestal, the first Secretary of Defense, who assumed his duties at about the same time as the National Security Act of 1947 taking effect, became the de facto first leader of the Majestic Twelve. His private compass became the symbol for the person who should lead the group, a compass that always points to the ethical and moral right direction. As time went by, and as the exposure of the P-45 J-Rods began spreading to countries east of the Iron Curtain, the Majestic became aware that if it didn't embrace the Soviet Union into a unified group, the diplomatic arrangements between the P-45 J-Rods and others could wildly spin out of the Majestic's control. To prevent this, the Majestic agreed to internationalize the study and control group of the ET question. Thus was born the Committee of the Majority. The Committee of the Majority was organized as a group of 33 persons of multiple nationalities with a focused group of 12 Americans underneath it, remaining under the, the name the Majestic Twelve. The organization of the Committee of the Majority happened under the presidential term of John F. Kennedy. The shuffling of information between nations and official communiques happened alongside of the creation and ratification of the Partial Test Ban Treaty of 1963. The information leaked to ufology that Majestic's birthday was September 24th happened because only partial information of the truth reached them. The association between September 24th and the Majestic happened because the Partial Test Ban Treaty of 1963 was ratified by the United States Senate on September 24, 1963. In fear that ufologists and investigators were getting too close to the truth during the 1980s and 90s, disenfranchised members of a former disinformation unit leaked the September 24th date, but paired it with information that was not true. That group's name is the Avery. The job of that group has been and will always be to lie to you and confuse you with the truth that's mixed with lies. And that's just basically how they keep everything so compartmentalized. That's how they keep everything away from each other. I mean, it, it's crazy, the secrecy that goes into it. And, and what they're talking about there, the job that it has been to lie and to confuse you, well, they came out with a book called Project Blue Book, and that was basically just to tell everyone that everything was weather balloons and swamp gas. So, Which, yeah, we've definitely gone over that in past. Pro- and absolutely. Now, members of, uh, of the Majestic have always embraced September 24th as its birth date because that is the date a world-shaking problem was first embraced by our world through the Committee of the Majority. The negotiations finalizing the structure and function of the Committee of the Majority were completed a few years later in a process called chartering during the finalization of the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. From and until 2002, the Committee of the Majority remained in control of the expanding ET issue. Now, in 2002, the former head of Majestic 12 opened a coalition to inform the world to inform worldwide of the totality of extraterrestrial time travel issue. He decided this as the compass for the Majestic because he believed that the people had a right to know of the events that would soon come into their future. 
And because data from the looking glass units had revealed that wider public knowledge of the time travel reality would in part partially nebulous way somehow assist humanity in passing the time of the J-Rods and Orion's historical catastrophe without such a catastrophe happening in our current timeline. Now, the resulting political ramifications rocked the committee of the majority, causing its near-immediate collapse over the question of disclosure. Now, following its collapse, the former head of Majestic 12 under the committee majority took charge of the group in schism and reformed an internationalized version of the group of 12. By the end of 2005, as a part of its founding agreement for the Majestic 12 to be handed over from one Masonic Rite to another, a vote was taken to adjourn the previous Masonic Rite group and to order selective operatives to provide a limited disclosure of extraterrestrial phenomenon to the public. They followed their orders with the release of the information, which includes this document. Level 4, known as the Aquarius level, contained the so-called badge wall. By the time one gets down to level 4, one is only wearing either an orange or blue numbered badge. It depends on what badge one was given at security control. The badge, like the ones shown in this document, unfortunately we can't, maybe we'll put them up on our Facebook page, were given up and stored at the security control. From that moment onward, Aquarius team members wore the blue or orange numbered badges. It was flat colored, with a large number on the front and a small identical number on the backside bottom right. If one of Maj Echelon, they would always be given a blue badge with the numbers in white. At level 4 decon, the decon specialist would assign the level 4 number from a badge board filled with more of these badges. Now your original badge would be turned over on the spot where the new number would be assigned. For purposes of technical level 4-4 drawing found in this document, Dan has mocked up that Dan has mocked up a board where one person, number three, had entered level four and was assigned number four by the decon specialist. For level four, original number three badge back to where as he ascended to S41. Once back at the security control, he would hand in his number three badge back to security and receive his personal badge back in return. Nobody was allowed to use proper names at the facility at all. Man, that is... Woo, could you imagine like going down floor by floor, getting new badges, turning your badge in. And hoping that you don't turn the wrong way, because remember, you follow those red lines. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. over. Yeah, you know? that is crazy. That certainly is. So, now let's see. Dan's assignment at Area S4 was to enter a set of large rotary airlock doors and step into a clean sphere. From there, he was to take living tissue samples from the specimen that awaited him. The fact that there were nine hangar bays at Area S4 and that the sum of the two numbers which made up level 4-5 equals 9 is no accident. The facility was numbered in specific fashion due to the fact that the number 9 is of numerological significance to the J-Rod's culture. Eventually, Dan became the Project Aquarius working group leader, and he wrote the final report on over 200 tissue samples which were taken from J-Rod. Now, measuring... 52 feet 7 inches across from exterior edges of the clean sphere and approximately 26 feet 3 inches tall. The entire clean sphere floor is about 100 feet across. 
The wall of the clean sphere measures two inches thick. The clear optical quartz clean sphere must have a rep represented significant engineering hurdle to install in place during construction of the facility. Special note, the clean sphere dome was not a complete dome or globe, but in point of fact, half of a sphere, similar to an orange cut in half. The upper portion of the clean sphere house contained exactly seven indented windows measuring two and a half inches wide by four and a half inches tall, probably feet, sorry, with two indented sections, one on each end of the windows containing a large screen television for camera monitoring, which allowed for high-level military brass and scientists to monitor Dan's work with the J-Rod below. These included members of Majestic 12 who lived inside the residential units on level three, the one visiting. All activity inside this clean sphere was recorded on videotape for historical archives. Provisions for two boardrooms were also located at level 4-5. A large scissor lift was located at the bottom of the facility, which could raise and lower the clean sphere. The operation of the scissor lift in the clean sphere was almost identical to the scissor lifts used at large commercial airports. According to Dan, the scissor lift made a low-frequency rumbling noise when in operation, and an identical area of flooring led to the airlock mating system of the clean sphere. This allowed the gantry vehicle with Dan inside a containment vessel to be driven to and locked onto the clean sphere airlock. A metal ventilation grating screen was located on the floor surface of the clean sphere. Officially, Dan was assigned to be the working group leader in Project Aquarius R-4800 Papoose Site 4 on the Nevada test site. First class impeccable lighting was used in both the clean sphere level 4-5 and level 4 labs. The level 3 laboratories were also lighted and had extremely good local lighting. In the clean sphere, this lighting consisted of at least 40 high-quality directional track lights, which could be configured to allow for virtually no shadows. There also existed six large turret lights and multiple spectrum lights as needed. The 12 manually operated kick plates surrounding the circumference of the clean sphere served to the bridge the gap between the edge of the stationary floor and the exterior war wall of the clean sphere. Now, according to Dan, these plates would slam down with a loud bang once turned on. The iris served to stabilize the clean sphere once it was lifted to the level of the stationary floor. This device was actually embedded into, inside the stationary floor and consisted of only three plates, which would each be lowered to an individual level, then swung outward and away from each other and into the stationary flooring. When it closed, it looked like a pie consisting of three large pieces. That's uh, That right there just proves this document is uh, 100% real. Oh, I know. I mean, just getting down into the nitty-gritty like that, it's just like, come on. I mean, he's explaining the lighting and the way that that device connects to the clean sphere in such specific detail. It's amazing. So before meeting the J-Rod, an extensive series of precautions had to be made. This included wearing a totally enclosed suit, similar to an astronaut's spacesuit. The TES included a long umbilical hose system for oxygen and air conditioning. This provided a positive pressure, closed system environment inside the suit, which would protect Dan from any potential microbes or viruses during contact with the alien. What's interesting about the outfits that they're showing with these 
um, with those systems with the umbilical hose and the oxygen and air conditioning provided. If you look at some ancient hieroglyphs from, from ancient Egypt, there's some entities that are depicted wearing very similar suits like that, and they're carrying boxes connected to tubes that look just like that. What? Yeah, those boxes are different from uh, astronaut suits because they re- they recycle the air and use the the air conditioning system to pump in fresh air. Right. So, the PINS, pressurized induction needle system device, was specifically designed for taking biological tissue samples. The device had a brushed metal exterior finish, similar in appearance to a modern medical equipment. During operations inside the clean sphere, a pressurization hose was attached to the aft end of the PINS device. Next, a small specimen vial was loaded into the empty chamber. A sliding spring loaded clasp located on the top section of the device secured the top cover in place. A small rotatable on-off valve was located on the right side of this unique medical device. The pins needle would be inserted into the correct location inside the body of the living J-Rod. This procedure was performed without the J-Rod either receiving a local anesthesia or a sedation of any kind. This caused great pain for both the J-Rod and Dr. Dan, who was taking the sample, as Dr. Dan was entrained by the J-Rod and was feeling the J-Rod's pain in the corresponding location of his own body. This occurred for each and every sample removed. After pulling the trigger-like device on the pins unit, a specifically sized sample from the body of the J-Rod would be drawn into the pressurization valve of the pins unit. Each sample was extremely small. The needle would be withdrawn from the body of the J-Rod. The side valve of the pins unit would be turned to a closed position, and the pins unit would be placed into the case for the pins equipment. Pressurization with the use of the specific pressure patch would then be applied to the area of the J-Rod where the needle was inserted. The pressure would then be held constant against the J-Rod's body for at least 15 minutes. At the conclusion of the session, Dr. Dan would be instructed to remove the patch and assess the area for any swelling or liquid emissions. If the J-Rod was bleeding, further steps would need to be taken for his care. If the J-Rod was not bleeding, the pressure patch would be inserted into a small vial within within Dan's pins equipment case. Next, the vial in the pins unit would be removed from the unit. Both vials would then be carried across the clean sphere to the export transit system, located on the equipment service station near the clean sphere's teleprompter. A port leading up to level 3 was chosen and announced by Dan over the radio. Pressure to that port was turned on by level 3 by their personnel. Dan was informed when he could unlatch the port cover. On being told he could open the port cover, Dan indicated what he was doing over the radio, then rotated the port cover 90 degrees counterclockwise and pushed the port cover inward, which then caused the entire port to slide out towards him. The port looked like a cylinder about the size of a roll of U.S. quarters. The left side of the port had an oval opening. The vial containing the pressure patch was inserted into the port first and then pushed forward into the port with Dan's gloved left thumb. After pushing the vial containing the pressure patch forward, 
The vial containing the tissue specimen was then placed in the oval of the port directly behind the patch. Using his right hand, Dan clasped the cover of the port and pushed the port forward back into the service station's frame. He then pushed the port inward and rotated it 90 degrees clockward, causing the latch to close. He would then pick up a smaller glass cylinder from the floor of the clean sphere below the surface station, which was sitting on the floor propped up between two grates near the inside wall of the clean sphere. This was added by the other personnel and remained there on the floor between uses. The cylinder had a locking mechanism. The open end of the cil cylinder was inserted into a locking ring, which circled the closed port. Dan would press inward and rotate the cylinder 90 degrees clockwise to lock the cylinder, forming a cap over the port. Level 3 lab personnel would be informed by laboratory surveillance that the port was locked and would instruct Dan to take one step backward away from the port, following which they would pressurize the system and suck the two vials up from level 4-5 to the lab on level 3 in a manner of reminiscent of a drive-through banking tube system. After successful receipt of the tubes on level three, Dan would be instructed to remove the sample port cylinder's cap by unlatching it with a 90-degree counterclockwise turn and place it back on the floor from where he first took it. Following this, he was free to return to the J-Rod for further work. Dan described using a special configured briefcase to carry the pins device with him into the clean sphere. The case had a metallic exterior finish with a fully integrated handle. The interior of the case was lined with black foam. The pins device was stored in a conformal cut section of the foam with, with provisions for at least four specimen vials and up to a 12 breakaway needles. Now, before entering the facility, Dan was weighed in the nude. The security measure was designed to ensure that nothing ever left the facility. Prior to ending the clean sphere, support personnel assisted Dan with putting on his TES to enter the clean sphere. Dan would gather his pins briefcase along with the extra length of the umbilical oxygen hose, which already had been connected to the atmosphere support system. That support system was pulled along via guide wires, which were stretched to various locations and wall to wall on the clean sphere floor level. Next, he would enter a rotatable airlock system that pressurized the chamber to match the ambient pressure of the clean sphere. The procedure for the entrance to the clean sphere is detailed on an image which shows th this gantry vehicle in, in the airlock device. It, it, it really is pretty amazing. Dan was made aware that stored at Area S4, a particular device is kept which is known as the Orion Cube. The device which arrived in 1954 was later nicknamed the Yellow Book due to a yellowish vorticular color which would emanate from the top of the device upon activation. The name Yellow Book was also leaked to UFOlogy by Avery personnel for disinformation purposes. This device, in point of fact, is a, spe a special type of holographic record and quantum viewing unit that both documents our history as well as our present and future occurrences probabilities. Its output is susceptible to changes unintentionally provided to it by its users. 
Only P-52KJ rods and Orions, and those who have been specially trained by such J-rods and Orions through entertainment, can operate the device without substantially altering its output. The looking glass device, as described from the S4 level, does not suffer this potential shortcoming. Some of those who have accessed specific details regarding the future events contained in the Orion Cube have been totally devastated by its implications. Most of those cases of negative outcome were caused because the operator was neither a P-52K J-Rod or an Orion, or someone who was trained by either one of them. The negative outcomes were largely the result of the operator coloring the output data through their own internal fears their hopes for the future. Attachments to their understandings of the past and rigid world and philosophical views. Trained operators have either largely had a few negative outcomes or have been able to intentionally color the outcomes in a way to manipulate onlookers. The last was such a case during the TAL 9-6 treaty negotiations in the 2003-2004 time period. The P-45KJ rods were successfully talked out of the treaty authorized present human abductions by the use of a rouge involving the Orion Cube. This device was given to President Eisenhower at the Edwards Air Force Base during a prearranged meeting with the P-52 extraterrestrial Orions in 1954 when when an official treaty was brokered for later discussions and formal signings. Of special note is the fact that this historical event was completely captured on motion picture film reels. The cube measures 8 inches square and projects a holograph image about 10 inches in diameter emitted disc of concentrated light. The cube has been stored at multiple locations, including Area S4, and inside a locked vault associated with the Scottish Rite Masonic Temple in Washington, D.C., Wow, that sounds crazy. Yeah, it does. Now, the first day that Dan met what came to be called J-Rod by his handlers was a significant day, which he would never forget. The name J-Rod emerged many years earlier when being pointed at the J on the lightened teleprompter screen, which contained the letters of the English alphabet, and at the physics inertial bar symbol on another portion of the same teleporter screen. Telepathically, the being communicated that those symbols were summed as identification for himself. The J's, 10th position in the English alphabet and sigma units, relating the inertial bar to the Mayan glimp for the number 5 indicated that J-Rod stood for number 15. 15 being significant due to the fact that it was applied designator for the number of light years from Earth to a base from which P-45KJ rods traveled to Earth for their work with with present-day humankind. As a specially trained P-52KJ rod, he was integrated into the base for diplomatic efforts on the part of the P-52KJ rods with the two 
52K Orions. The base was located in Gliese system in the direction of the constellation Aquarius, the origin of the name of the project, Project Aquarius. Upon observing the J-Rod for the first time from the gallery, after he and others had worked on the J-Rod's tissue and cells for a few years, without ever being directly told they were working on extraterrestrial material, he was shocked at the, of the appearance of the J-Rod. While sitting in the clean sphere, the J-Rod reminded Dan of a small, darkened, hunched insect-like creature. Following being briefed on the J-Rod's origins and other known aspects, the team in which Dan served returned to their laboratory and worked on the extraterrestrial material. During this time, Dan and his fellow team members internally wrestled with the fact that there existed an extraterrestrial intelligence, in fact, a few of them, which were directly related to humankind. Their mere existence in our general time period as time travelers constituted a paradox that they also learned had been codified as a doctrine. Amid fear, excitement, and complete astonishment, they realized and were shown the documentary and history proof that the paradoxical aspect of time travel and the data from which it revealed past historical facts different from the accepted recorded history and many future probable events was the core. The one deep truth as to why the governments of the world have kept the extraterrestrial presence a secret from the vast populations of humanity. Now, visiting and visiting members of humanity and other life forms on the planet. They had said, however, that the governments of the world have restricted knowledge of their involvement with extraterrestrials due to the above stated facts involving time travel and paradoxes. Their relationship to central players involving the cover up disallows the attempts being made by certain disinformation specialists, experiencers, and belief advocates within ufology and their attempts to hedge or add to the real nature of the government's involvement with extraterrestrial cover-up disinformation specialists plus experiencers plus belief advocates do not equal the weight of the testimony of those coming from the center of the cover-up itself many have attempted to merge their testimony into the testimony provided by dr dan and marcy in some case, the salient aspects of the testimonies of others have closely matched the testimonies of Dr. Dan and Marcy. In other cases, the testimony of others has been completely different than the testimony of Dan and Marcy. In some of those cases, where there's a difference, the perception of the individual providing the testimony has been skewed by the conditions of stress surrounding the event itself. In other cases, the person's testimonies directly relates to experiences which have nothing to do with the testimony of Dr. Dan and Marcy relating to human lineage extraterrestrials and the government's involvement. In some cases, individuals have applied their belief system about the extraterrestrials as an issue as a reason to denounce the truthful disclosure that Dr. Dan and Marcy have made. In still other cases, disinformation specialists paid to attempt to disrupt any disclosure of truthful information to the people have attacked the testimony of Dr. Dan and Marcy out of what they consider to be their professional obligations. Dr. Dan and Marcy are representatives of the secret government itself. That secret government as an entity has heard the call of the people pleading for disclosure. The very fact of the continued presence of Dr. Dan and Marcy before the public, pl 
plus their testimony concerning the core issues of the government cover-up constitutes the first formal steps of worldwide disclosure. The reactions of those who interact with the testimony of Dr. Dana Marcy are being compiled and will be addressed as the next formal step following the original Brookings Institution study as to whether the worldwide public both bears the internal fortitude and wide mental preparation for the continued disclosure of information that will affect every aspect of human culture. Should the wrong steps be taken and wider disclosure be provided to the population if it's not sufficiently prepared for such potentially wholly disruptive facts, the results in and of themselves have already been assessed as likely politically and culturally catastrophic. Are you prepared? Time will tell. Now, soon after Dan's team was introduced to the fact that they were dealing with extraterrestrial tissue, The previous unit that had been dealing directly with the extraterrestrial, called AQJR1, was cycled out of Project Aquarius, and the team in which Dan was assigned was cycled into a direct interaction with the J-Rod. The team in which Dan was assigned was designated AQJR2. At the start of AQJR2, Dan was assigned as a B unit, assisting the entry person, the A unit. With his preparations for entry into the clean sphere, the person's name was Dr. Stephen M. Soon, after Dan was ordered to replace Dr. Stephen M. as the entry person, the A unit, also called the working group leader. This brought Dan in direct contact with the extraterrestrial Albeit He had been having private discussions with the extraterrestrial from time to time. He had been first walked onto the first floor surrounding the clean sphere is when he met him. Over the next two years, Dan developed a close relationship with the J-Rod. Dan would come to have confirmed by the J-Rod that his friend originated from the star group known as the Zeta Reticuli Cluster. The being was small in stature, approximately three and a half feet tall, dark brown in appearance with very large black eyes, and a disproportionately large head with respect to the rest of his body. There were a large knob near the being's heels on his feet. The being also had long arms with four long fingers. His nose was significantly recessed into his head, and he had a very small mouth with no teeth. From the instant of his stepping onto the floor outside the clean sphere, Dan had telepathically connected to the J-Rod, a contact initiated by the J-Rod. The J-Rod confirmed to Dan that his species suffered from a serious neuropathy, which is an inherited congenial condition. This condition caused a significant loss of body heat and made it difficult for the being to stand stand up straight or walk. The being was never allowed to wear any clothing while inside the clean sphere. The protocols of approaching the J-Rod in the clean sphere required both to display an open hand before any tissue samples were taken. During his time with the J-Rod at S4, Dan was to learn his name was Chi Ala'a. Now, as their relationship developed, the J-Rod allowed Dan to see a mental picture of his family and explained many details from his home world. He explained that he was very old and that his species survives on mostly a liquid diet augmented by nutritional pastes. The officially sanctioned name given to the visitor was EBE 
53AZ2. EBE stands for Extraterrestrial Biological Entity. EBE 53AZ1 was a P45KJ rod that was sent to the Los Alamos National Laboratory, YY2, containment area. The P plus 45KJ rod taken to Los Alamos was brought into a containment facility, codenamed for him as ICE. The codename was attri- attributed to the 15 systoline phases of water as meaningful reason to the numerological J rods to accept the name of the facility in which he was stored, the name J rod itself having the same meaning. 15. The usage of water. Term. Ice was especially meaningful given the name of the new project, Aquarius, being Water Barrier. Concerning the leaked officially facility designation of YY2, the facility was really named with official designations after 1953 arrival of the P plus 45KJ rod. That bill U House worked with as Y11, not YY2. The last portion of the coded facility designation, meaning the negative 2, actually was an 11 for Project Aquarius, as Aquarius is the 11th zodiacal sign. The Y stood as a reference for the Mayan Yaluk, as the P plus 45J rod referred to the P plus 24K Roswell crash victims as such, due to their mishap from atmospherical electrical charges, the Y being the 25th letter of the alphabet being added to the two ones was 25 plus 2 equals 27, equals 2 plus 7 equals equals nine. He was the J-Rod that Bill Uhouse met. The EBE 53AZ3 died on impact at the Kingman, Arizona crash site. A massive download of information from the J-Rod to Dan occurred one day when the J-Rod chose to break the established protocols of greeting. After Dan had entered the clean sphere and conducted the established entry protocol of raising his right hand in friendship, Dan began to step towards the J-Rod. This procedure consisted of a slow, bride-step-like walk across the clean sphere towards the J-Rod. After Dan took the first step forward, and both feet resting in a parallel position, the J-Rod quickly stood up into a semi-standing position and took a step towards Dan. At that moment, since the J-Rod was not directly communicating with Dan, the J-Rod was only believed to be violating protocol for some unknown reason. Thinking that the J-Rod would likely remain where he was, then standing, Dan moved forward with his second bride step. At the conclusion of Dan's second bride step forward, the J-Rod quickly stepped forward again. In a panic, no matter how close he felt to the J-Rod at that moment, and as the J-Rod then began to entertain Dan with telepathic activity, Dan began to stagger forward for a moment. This increased his panic due to the J-Rod's unusual behavior. Dan then lunged backward, catching the heel of one of his boots on the, on the grating of the clean sphere floor and fell backward on his back. Due to the nature of the environmental suit Dan was wearing, it was difficult to move, let alone get up after falling to his back. Now, as Dan tried to raise himself from the floor, the J-Rod quickly 
approached Dan and climbed onto Dan's torso. The J-Rod was positioned on his knees while on Dan's torso with his hands forward leaning on Dan's helmet, locking mechanism just below the front of Dan's chin. When the J-Rod fell forward with his hands on the locking mechanism, he did so with clenched fist, which sounded like a loud bang from Dan's perspective. Dan's eyes widened, but he said nothing. And did very little because he knew that the one that one aggressive strike by him under the extraterrestrial, given the fragile nature of the J-Rod's body, would have easily killed the being. The radio system interrupted with calls to rapidly change the internal pressure of the clean sphere in order to inflict pain on the J-Rod to incapacitate him. During the same moment, the J-Rod began to heavily a trained Dan, causing Dan to begin the relaxation process. This process is almost identical to that used by the P-45K J-Rods during human abductions. Now, Dan tried to inform his co-workers via the radio system that he was not being attacked or harmed by the J-Rod as they had feared was occurring. The J-Rod proceeded to download a series of incredible visual images into his mind. This important information corroborated that the J-Rod originated from our own future, as well as having traveled to our distant past. The J-Rod also revealed to Dan that in the J-Rod's distant past, there had been a significant catastrophe. And that catastrophe, by its position in the J-Rod's past, was to then, 1994, occur in our reasonable near future. The nature of the catastrophe was to have been a massive geophysical pole shift of slightly less than five degrees, which resulted in the death of over two-thirds of the human species, as well as the extinction of the world's many of their species. The precise cause of the catastrophe was to have been the reaction of the asthenosphere to a massive explosion of energy from our sun. The crust on many areas of the earth was said to have shifted by virtue of this energy from the sun striking the earth. Promoting their catastrophe were devices that had been built and were in operation at various locations in the earth at the time of the solar burst. Those devices were determined to be the very Einstein-Rosen bridge accessing devices, or stargates, and the looking glass mechanisms currently used in 1994. Now, since the time of this relevatory material being learned by the governments of the Earth, all such devices have been decommissioned. The result of their catastrophe was to have ultimately been a series of genetic split in the human species, ultimately producing the J-Rods and Orions. Many thousands of years after their catastrophe, the ones to be called Orions departed this Earth for bases first on the Moon, then on Mars, leaving traces of their colonization as they went. Many thousands of years after the Orions departed from Mars to their ultimate home in the Orion constellation, the J-Rods departed from Earth directly to their future home in Zeta Reticuli. In the meantime, prior to the J-Rods leaving from Earth to Zeta Reticuli, they once again used time travel, a process close to the means that originally caused their own catastrophe, to jump back in time from a period roughly correlating to 24,000 years from now to July 1947. As we all know from Roswell incident, their trip was not very successful. Aside from much information the public knows, what it generally does not know is that is that day 
in the clean sphere. When the J-Rod stepped upon Dan to impart information to him, the J-Rod downloaded about 300 diary volumes of material of the 400-plus diary volumes that Dan has written since his induction into Majestic in 1986. Fully three-fourths of the diary writings came from approximately a half-hour constant download from the J-Rod that day in 1994. Dr. Marcy continues to refuse requests for direct access to Dan's diary material due to the very concerns being outlined for continued disclosure to the population of the world by the secret government. The material spans everything from the corrected histories since antiquity to the possibilities of future events in the timeline in which humanity seems to be traveling. The one best note that Dr. Dan and Marcy seem willing to release is that the aforementioned major catastrophe and even a major but lesser follow-on catastrophe have been averted due to the positive actions of humankind during the time in history. Our positive consciousness during the time in the face of the individuals and groups who have attempted to drag humanity in every possible manner of destructive thought has and will fail. As a matter of fact, concerning his personal arrival, it was determined that the J-Rod was recovered from the UFO that crashed northwest of Kingman, Arizona on May 20th, 1953. As Dan would learn, a purpose of the J-Rod coming to Earth in our time was an attempt to find a cure for the neuropathy through perhaps gene hybridization to cure the disease in his time. Aside from the J-Rod's political orders, he was to seek this biomedical assistance because it was believed that the intact genome of present-day humanity contained something more than the Orion and J-Rod sum of its parts, something the J-Rod and other Orions referred to as the joined resonance. Some Orions referred to it as the conjoined resonance. This is the dark secret as to why the earlier P45K J-Rods have been so aggressive in the sampling of humanity, meaning human abductions, prior to the time we live in. After each assignment within the clean sphere was completed, both Dan and the J-Rod had to undergo decontamination. The J-Rod was decontaminated by a little-known team, part of which remained in 24-7 personal residence within the ambassadorial suite level, which was the location of the clean sphere, was lifted up from prior to it being locked in place on the level 4-5 floor for interaction with the AQJR2. Another part of that quiet team who dealt directly with the J-Rod in the ASL was called the Wise Men. The group was periodically seen on the floors of S4 and on occasion even dined near the other workers in the Nevada room on floor one. Other information about them is available, but not pertinent to this report. The decontamination procedure for Dan was specifically designed to sterilize the TES to eliminate any potentially harmful microbes or other materials. Now, what eventually became of the J-Rod that Dan had contact with at Area S4, according to Dr. Dan and Marcy, as well as many other theorists and investigators, there are a number of naturally occurring wormholes warm or stargates, temporarily, if not specifically, located around the Earth. One location being Iraq, and another location ne near the 
Abydos Temple along the Nile River in Egypt. Per Dan's comments, the Sumerian culture 6,000 years ago figured out how to access these wormholes and preserve the blueprints regarding this process on cylinder seals. Thousands of these seals were at one time stored at the Baghdad Museum in Iraq, now called the National Museum of Iraq. According to Dan, a group of scientists used information they found on the cylinder seals to engineer a Stargate device. This was done by a process of mirror imaging many of the cylinder seal depictions. Dan has a large collection of design aspects for looking glass, stargate, transport pad, and flying disc engineering schematics, all revealed by the mirror imaging process. The stargate device would access naturally occurring wormholes and piggyback on them to transport information and even biological material in very limited circumstances, vast distances across the universe. At this point, we need to dis discriminate between the looking glass device Eisentine Rosenbridge accessing device, Stargates and EBADs, and the other power plants used by disc -like craft to travel vast linear time distances and even time travel. The looking glass on floor 2 of S4 was not capable of transmitting any material from here to anywhere. Its time travel capabilities were restricted to information coming into our present time from another time location. In that sense, it functioned like the Orion Cube, but the human interaction with the looking glass could not affect the data from the looking glass. The looking glass was back-engineered originally from the Stargate device by removing two components of the Stargate device and by changing the angle on upon which the central device was positioned with respect to the center of the Earth. The Stargate device was originally en engineered from the secrets in the cylinder seals, was capable of sustaining a strange matter field for a limited period of time before the field would collapse. The power plants that the flying disk and plan forms used, which were housed at S-Force, S4 produce a space-time distortion of the kind generally explained by the previous testimony of Robert Lazar. The power plants, however, lack the engineering structure to enable distant forward and backward dialing, save that of the power plant which had been originally located originally placed in the Roswell craft. The majority of the disk-like craft at S4 were only capable of promoting instantaneous point-to-point -point transit. Slight changes in the PF. 52K J-Rod and the Orion power plants would enable those craft to acquire the same configurations at their distant pre predecessor craft, the Roswell Terrestrial Time Plan form. The acquisition of the cylinder seals and the Stargate technology may be one reason why during the invasion of Iraq in 2003, one of the first places the U.S. troops were told to enter was Baghdad Museum. This was clearly an effort by the members of the elite to recover the technology associated with accessing these stargates for personal gain. Man, that is a disclosure. When disclosure occurs, there is so much information that we have. I mean, my head just almost like hurts right now just from going over all, all the information that we collected on this topic. Um, and I like the way that it ended, too, because, again, we did a podcast on that exact thing of, of why we really went to a war in Iraq and all of that and, 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 and what was contained inside the museum. And uh, S4 is, is so in-depth. I wonder... I wonder what's going on there now. Well, funny you should say that because right now, as they're saying that there might be a new facility referred to um, like right by there as Area 52, 
which was not showing up on any type of Google Maps for over eight years. Now, I saw a video today that they finally had to disclose a picture of the facility so everyone knows of its existence. And there was a hangar door, and there's a craft that's hanging like halfway out of the hangar door on this image. But the elite got their hands on it, and they kind of smudged the image so you can't see what it is. So, again, there's there's more leading towards we're getting closer and closer to disclosure, hopefully. Especially with, with Trump at the helm, uh, this stuff that's going on out in Nevada, these these secret locations and these secret facilities that are housing uh, extraterrestrial beings, it's it's all going to come to light. Uh, it absolutely will. I mean, I, was, I watched a documentary recently with a guy, an insider from NASA for the past 60 years, but he said that um, disclosure could even start as early as November 2018. So that's upon us. It is. It, it, it's definitely in our lifetime. For sure. So this was a really interesting topic. It took a really long time to put all this material together. So again, that's why we broke it down into a two-parter. But uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it as uh, much as we did um, telling the story of Project Aquarius. It was fun. It was long. It was good. It was awesome, though. I loved it. It was. So um, we had a lot of fun, and we can't wait till next time. So until then, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.